Carter, you're on mute. Oh, that was just the Sistine Chapel of podcast introductions, too. It's okay. We'll do it again. Second time's the charm. Welcome back to Living on a Changing Planet. My name is Carter Powis. I'm a climate scientist and economist from Toronto, Canada, and I am joined today, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Patrick Kennedy-Williams. Patrick how are you? Hi, Carter. Hi, how are you today? It's going to be a surprise to absolutely no one that I'm excited for the conversation today, but I'm genuinely excited. Why don't, uh, Patrick, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to um, be speaking with our guest today. Um, our guest who I've, I've known about her for a long time, but it was, it was only in, earlier this year, such a COVID story, this. It was only earlier this year that we finally got to meet um, in person and she is an in, just an inspiration absolute inspiration she's uh, an author and researcher working at the forefront of climate change and mental health Carter you can see why you can see why I wanted to get her on the show she's currently a human and planetary health fellow at Stanford University I love that's the that's just the coolest title I've ever heard in my life and I want to talk more about what that role involves um, and also at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, she's run for a long time a really successful newsletter called Gen Dread, and more recently uh, is the author of the fantastic new book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Um, it gives me such such pleasure to introduce Britt Way. Hi, Britt. Hey, thank you so much, Patrick and Carter. I'm really happy to be here with you both. And you're both from Toronto. Yes. So I feel left out. We just discovered that. <laughs> yeah. Sharing our most favorite hometown. I'm a, I don't know, an evangelist of sorts of Toronto. How about you, Carter? <laughs> oh, how could I not be? <laughs> He's literally wearing a Toronto, you're wearing a Toronto hat right now. So that kind of says it all. Exactly. <laughs> so Britt, starting at the beginning, now this is, this is a question that, um, that we, we, we like to kick off the show with, and we've, we've asked everyone this season and I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to hear how you answer this. Um, right back to the, to the beginning, can you remember when, when it was that you first uh, learned about uh, climate change as a process? Um, and also, because it, be, it might be around the same time, or it may have been at a, at a different time, um, when you learned about, for the first time, the climate crisis, right, as a kind of human and planetary health issue? Um, Good question. I've been asked this many times. And I cannot locate a particular moment when I first became aware of climate change or global warming. And I think that's because it was this ethereal thing that had floated into my life sometime probably in high school through a conversation with my parents about something in the news or science class. And it was just appearing and something out there, this miasma we were floating through, but nothing that urgent in my life. It wasn't until I was an undergrad studying biology in university that I met a woman, a, you know, a young woman my age at that time named Thea. And she was also a biology student, very talented, top of the class, go-getter, head of all the clubs and organizations. And she said, I need to dedicate my career towards addressing the climate crisis with my research because it's the most urgent thing that we're facing in our lifetimes. And I was like, hmm, I take Thea's 
opinions very seriously. (laughs) And if she's going to organize her world around this and start applying for PhDs directly, and, you know, of course she did and she achieved and she opened up a lab at Ivy League University very quickly and does all this peat science in order to store carbon um, in that organic material. That, that, yeah, exactly. And I was just like, okay, now I, now I get it. Now people my age are starting to radically shake things up and just get real about their own journey and purpose as it relates to the climate crisis. And I think I was probably 18 or 19 when that happened. So that would have been 2007 or so. That's when I realized it was a crisis. And what did that feel like for you? What were the emotions associated with that realization? Yeah, so between 2004 and 2008, when I was doing my undergraduate degree in biology, my focus was on conservation biology and evolutionary ecology. My courses were very much preoccupied with the non-human world. That was my adoration in life. And seeing the continual downhill motion in which we were moving as a field, as conservation biologists, and just bearing witness to more and more loss, more and more threats to precious ecosystems and species, and then more species going extinct or becoming critically endangered, that had a huge toll that I now recognize to be ecological grief. And it was just baking in bad news all the time and being with these really amazing people who cared a lot and were purpose-driven in their work and had amazing strategies to help remedy the situation, but then being up against the complex systems in which we're living, which are prioritizing profit and capital over ecological health. It just felt, it, it brought on the feelings of dread, the fatigue, you know, the sadness, the anger, which I now very much attribute to the climate crisis as well. But at the time, it felt very much focused on biodiversity for me. So then, you know, I start maturing as a climate person, so to speak, and I recognize that this is just more of the same, but from the climate emergency as well. So it feels like a deluge and something that I know those on the professional front lines experience in much greater proportion than those who are not necessarily professionally, vocationally tied up with having both eyes open to the ecological overshoot reality in which we're living. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it got really acute in 2017 when after paying attention to all of this research for a very long time, being a science journalist, science communicator, I was at this point in my life where with my partner, we were talking about wanting to try and get pregnant. And in the cultural zeitgeist out there, there was a lot of very alarmist writing about the climate crisis, putting it in worst case scenario terms, spelling it out, what it means for human flesh, you know, like to boil in a heat wave. And these kinds of gruesome characteristics were drawn clear across a variety of platforms. And I was taking that in on a human heart and gut level rather than just paying attention to, you know, carbon concentrations in the atmosphere and policy proposals and hockey stick graphs, which are the terms in which it was usually communicated. And it felt way more um, just chronically depressing slash anxiety-inducing, 
And so that created this big moment of pregnant pause in our life, to use a too obvious pun. Um, (laughs) Do I feel comfortable having a child in these conditions, understanding what this boils down to for uh, feeling, thinking, compassionate human who has to grow up in all of this and deal with the suffering, whether it's direct or that of others, and and have a kind of vicarious suffering as the world suffers. And um, the worst part about it is really noticing the lack of adequate action. You know, it's not just that the environment isn't doing well, it's really that moral injury piece of knowing that we have solutions, we have tons of talented people who could implement them, and seeing them be blocked and delayed time and time again because of political feasibility quibbles and really, I would say, morally bankrupt actions on the part of those who want to profit off of continued warming and, you know, intentional disinformation and seeding of doubt and denial and all of that frustrating stuff that we've been held back by for decades. So that piece is just, oh, like, do I, can I, can I deal with um, <laughs> what it means to commit a, a child to this world in which I'm not seeing the progress and that that could have really disastrous impacts on their well-being as they grow up. And I, of course, want to protect any child I have from traumatization and allow them to flourish. So that's when it became way more personal, way more existential. And just to wrap up that thought, at the time, I did not see other people my age talking about this openly There were a couple of friends who could get on my level of connecting the concern, climate crisis and reproductive choices. And some were talking about, oh, for instance, adoption would be the better choice in this scenario to help give a good life to someone who's already here and you don't need to produce another person and commit commit them to this situation. Um, But there was no one in the media really backing it up writing about it. There were no polls and surveys that were not celebrities and famous politicians coming out to validate this concern as there now are and have been for a number of years. So it was that, that deviance that made me really curious about, okay, is, is something messed up with my thinking here? (laughs) Can I get to the bottom of it? How can I explore this issue in a way that might support others who find themselves in a similar emotional quagmire wanting some support? What can I hang my hat on here? And that's what allowed me to, you know, start doing the research for the book, Generation Dread, which recently came out. So, yeah, it's just been a, it's been a, a meandering river of distress. <laughs> You're talking about, and this is something I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to you that we're able to talk about this. It's something I've, you know, I've been wanting to sort of talk about on this on this show or, or find kind of a forum to be able to, to be able to start talking about because you're right I think the the, the, the sort of decision of how to, of whether to have kids or not you know in the in the context of the climate crisis is is it can be such a difficult maze to navigate for people and this is something that's probably the most common reason that people have kind of approached me for for therapy right in a climate context and I often think of like if someone approaches someone for therapy, sometimes that can be representative of, of the fact that the kind of wider systems around us are kind of not are not providing a sort of adequate forum for 
helpful conversations, right? So this is something that people are feeling very alone in um, and don't feel they, they, they don't feel they can have these conversations or they don't feel that their friends would understand or their neighbours would understand or their work colleagues would understand or even, you know, even their, even their families would understand. Um, and here you are kind of, you, you know, putting this so front and centre in, in, in terms of how you're communicating your personal experience. I think it's firstly a very brave thing to do, but secondly, you've done it in a really nuanced and powerful way. So, 20, so 2017 to now, what obviously you're now a mum and all kinds of other things have happened in the meantime as well. And I'm really interested to hear you say, you feel like there are, there are these forums for people for people now. I mean, do you think, fast forward to 2022, do you think we're kind of starting to be able to sort of grapple with this, with this idea in a way that is, is helpful for people, you know, as, as prospective parents, people who are kind of coming to this question in their lives? Yes. So many things to say. When I started doing the research around reproductive anxiety in the climate crisis, I noticed pretty quickly, although it wasn't above ground, there was a festering world of underground concern where if I posted on social media, for instance, if anyone understood or resonated with this question, I would just get a deluge of response of people who felt like I've never been able to say this out loud, but absolutely for X, Y, Z reasons, it feels either immoral or too painful, or it's going to distract me and take all the resources, time and energy that I need to fight the climate crisis if I put them into a baby and so on and so forth. All these reasonings would come up. So I, I, I saw, okay, I'm, I'm not alone in this. And there was an organization called Conceivable Future, who's the only activist-led um, organization discussing the complicated emotions around having kids or not having kids in the climate crisis that help people run house parties wherever they are located so that they can basically bring, pierce the damaging bubble of silence around these concerns and bring them out into the open. And so just starting to have those conversations and removing the alienation and isolation of struggling with this brought a ton of relief. Seeing people hold up the mirrors of legitimization and validation when in fact, when I would interview my parents and my siblings, and um, my siblings are much older than me and had their own kids, they're half-siblings, for instance, and other people who I hold dear in my life, some friends, leaders, mentors, and they would not get it, and they would encourage me to have a kid because it's the best thing you can possibly do in your life or whatever kind of trope about feeling the deepest registers of love that are humanly possible. Still seeing, oh, you... You really can't get inside my my heart mind on this. <laughs> okay, I, I need to find others who can. And then finding them is immensely uh, just critical for part of digesting and integrating these experiences to go somewhere with them and find, you know, your path, whatever that's going to be. And so, yeah, I think now, fast forward to 2022, there's a whole proliferating cottage industry of containing spaces to do that, whether we're talking about something like climate aware therapy, which you offer, Patrick, or non-mental health professionally led circles like the Good Grief Network holding 10-step programs to move people through anxiety and grief and finding ways to deal with the uncertainty of the climate crisis. All of that, plus climate cafes and climate awakening and all we can save circles and a bunch of other things. And just having this now be a household topic, climate anxiety, is allowing people that liberatory space of processing and 
not feeling like they're crazy, essentially, uh, to use a term that is not great to use. Um, it, it, it is allowing that movement that is critical to be able to manage and, and figure out who you're going to be at this time. So that all happened for me. And there were tons of considerations that allowed me to become a mom, but essentially my own distress about the climate crisis got me to really pay attention, like sit up and lean into this scary reality of what the science is telling us and realize that I need to tap into some deeper meaning and purpose in my life. And that if I am going to have a kid, I want to be able to tell them that I did everything that I could. So I ended up changing my career. I left what I was doing. I had just finished a PhD focusing on synthetic biology, dropped that, started retraining, doing whatever I could, sitting for hours over a couple of years at my kitchen table, interviewing hundreds of people around the world that touched on mental health and climate from a variety of fields reading all the books and articles I could uh, so that I could contribute to what was clearly an emerging field of great need, climate and mental health, with very little supports on the ground. And while interviewing mental health professionals, just getting a sense of how woefully unprepared they all felt for dealing with the scope of psychic trauma that the climate crisis is going to be causing over the coming decades. It's like, okay, we need boots on the ground. We need researchers to help fill in evidence gaps so that we can make robust policy recommendations and co-design interventions that can help support people with this, whether we're talking acute trauma from disasters or the kind of more vicarious distress I was experiencing and the whole gamut in between. So making that shift and stepping into more meaning and purpose around what was stressing me out allowed me to feel more hopeful in a radical way, in an active way. I think that contributed to my decision to have a child, feeling less helpless, feeling less powerless but also understanding that many communities like you know the indigenous and black and colonized and just overall marginalized communities who live among us have been trampled on by systems who have not cared about their safety and well-being for hundreds of years and have continued having children as acts of political resistance and joy and meaning-making and survival. And really getting, you know, checking my own privilege and listening to communities who have not had, you know, the luxury I have of dreading the future with climate change and are actually battling systemic threats in the present. And what the act of having kids means to them was very pivotal uh, as well for my experience with all of this and and a million other reasons too, but some others to highlight would be coming to terms with the fact that actually my, my kid's life doesn't have to look anything like my life in order for it to be meaningful. It can be rife with hardship and turbulence um, and vulnerability and uncertainty and, and matter and be beautiful and be worth doing. So taking those kinds of considerations into account um, and then just saying, I, I want to, I'm here. I've got this one life. I don't necessarily think we're going to be reincarnated. And if we are, then great. But I'm planning for this one life. And I want it all in terms of I want the, the whole human experience. So bring on the depths of love and transformation that parenting can offer. And with that, that means taking on the risk of despair 
and grief and all the things that can happen when and if maybe you can't protect your child. But um, for me, not having a child in the end, when I really, really, really just drilled down to it, it would have been a commitment to all of my fear. It would have been a commitment to my anxiety. And having a child was a commitment to joy. And so I just decided that I wanted to live that way instead, even though it's hard. I love that idea. Yeah, I love that idea. And it's, this is something that I've, I've kind of heard in the, ther- in the therapy room. And exactly as you said, it's like someone might, might come to the decision to have a child in the, in, you know, alongside all of, like, all of those, all of those sort of competing and conflicting emotions, you know, and, and fears and anxieties. And, or they might decide not to have a child or they might decide to delay that decision. Um, and that, that that decision is is and should be unique to that person, right? And but also, I love this idea of thinking of it as as um, as a reproductive rights issue, right? That we all should, we all, everybody in the world should have the right to be able to decide, right, whether they have a, a child or not, in in the context of the climate crisis or whatever. Um, and you you mentioned kind of the experience of indigenous or or marginalized other marginalized communities as being almost as a sort of uh survival and joy mechanism right the importance of 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 children and and bringing new children into the communities and one of the things that's always really struck me about this this conversation around having a kid or not is that um it's only really ever it's only focused on certain communities you know the, the essentially the privileged communities you know and and so what what from your experience has been the kind of um, the view and the, sen- the sort of sentimentality around around having children in the context of the climate crisis in these communities that don't always have the mic in front of them? Yeah, so I've heard from many different Indigenous leaders that the climate crisis is not a reason they ever hear indigenous folks saying that they should not have kids because the climate crisis, while presenting a kind of quote unquote end of the world uh, perspective to many who are ambivalent about having kids, and that's the source of their stress, to indigenous folks, that doesn't align because of the, the end of the world already happened to them. They've lived through the apocalypse and survived when the white man came, took their children, put them in residential school, literally beat their languages out of them, you know, took their land, all of their sacred relations. That is the end of the world. And so having kids has been a necessary lifeline to resist colonization and continue to thrive and recuperate culture and all the things that make up a people. So to not have kids then actually lets the colonizers win. It's, it's, it's giving them what they want, so to speak. And that is, you know, nuanced by also an understanding that there are real fears in the climate crisis and there could come a moment when any community can't protect their kids from climate harms. And of course, that, that's appreciated and acknowledged, but generally, no, <laughs> that, that is not a, a, a potent conversation in many Indigenous communities because of what I just mentioned. And then, you know, my colleague, Jade Sasser, she's doing very important work 
interviewing youth of color in America about their emotions bearing down on their reproductive decisions, trying to understand their existential nature and what comprises them. And she says that across the board, racialized youth in the U.S., um, often from Black and Latino communities, but not only, will say it feels too crushing, the decision to have a child, because racial violence is very real still at this moment in this country. Political division is intolerable and the strife that comes with that. I, from an economic security standpoint, don't know if I have enough or would be able to make enough to provide for a child, given all these systemic barriers I'm dealing with all the time. And you're telling me I have to get ready to run from a wildfire in a split second with a kid on my back living in California and dealing with the threat of potential climate tipping points, stressing me out if we surpass them and what what that's going to mean for all the other knock-on effects of, you know, social strife that we're aware of. That all of that comes in. So there's the immediate threats of you know, what racial capitalism and violence does to, to their well-being, in addition to the climate concerns and, you know, economic concerns, all of that just makes it such a witch's brew. It's so tough to navigate. So, yeah, the climate concern is legitimized there. The eco-anxiety is there. It's just that it's layered on top of all these other existing difficulties, which makes this conversation for privileged folks often just so clear in why it's a climate source of stress that they're talking about which can create this assumption or this kind of um, sense that it's a privileged person's concern. It's not. It's just that there's the luxury of focusing on that one issue where this is showing up in other communities as well. You said something maybe five minutes ago, which has been running through my head ever since. Uh, You were speaking about this concept that just because your child's life will be more difficult than yours, in many ways, doesn't mean that it's going to be less beautiful or worthwhile or or meaningful. And I just really love that idea that there's a lot of talk nowadays about ways in which we've confused comfort for happiness. And in our pursuit of comfort, we've actually ended up pretty profoundly unhappy with a lot of ways that we've designed modern society. And I think it's a counterintuitive way to think about the climate crisis to not only recognize that there's going to be a lot of loss and adversity and difficulty as a result of the way that our planet changes over the coming decades, but that there may also be good that comes out of that as well in terms of injecting our lives with purpose and maybe reminding us, maybe it might help reorient our priorities as a, as a species towards the things that really matter in life, things that maybe we valued more uh, in the past before we started this pursuit of ever-increasing comfort. Yes. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you highlighting that and the fact that difficulty, adversity can bring out some of the core elements of human well-being, the opportunity to tap into relationships, connection, meaning, 
purpose, deep engagement in an activity, you know, flow state, for example, with really doing something that you know is important at this time, addressing the climate crisis from a variety of angles, for example. All of that can allow people to be happier, you know, but if we're in the kind of consumer culture, everyone's comfortable, kind of numb, just going on with the status quo and not necessarily actually having that deep, deep relation to things that wisdom traditions of thousands of years and people who research happiness and human flourishing tell us make a a life that is worth living that we are thankful for when we're on our deathbed. (laughs) You know, I think that the climate crisis can potentially bring out a lot of those things because of the comfort that it's stripping away and the deep work of creating communities of care that we are now required to do to, to, you know, be able to deal with all this change well and protect our, our happiness, so to speak. So I don't think it's diametrically opposed happiness and the climate crisis, even though I know that sounds a bit sick at first. Um, I think there's a lot that we can learn there from, from history of social struggles. And, you know, also when you listen to people who have been through war and ways that they've related to each other in, in, in deeply meaningful personal ways that are focused on love. I mean, that, that makes them happier than someone who's just buying stuff on Amazon all day. I get asked a lot, essentially, how, how should I feel about climate change? When people find out that I am a climate scientist, it's generally one of the first conversations that we end up having. And I've said a lot of things to a lot of different people trying to communicate how I think they should interpret the science. And I've said a lot of scary things. But the only thing I've ever said that's gotten a immediate, visceral, negative reaction from people is that I believe firmly that our children's lives will be more difficult than our lives. Their quality of life will be less as a result of climate change. Now, we've talked about the fact that this doesn't necessarily mean their lives will be less meaningful or less beautiful, but that they will have more hardship than we did. I would love to get your opinion on why you think, one, This is the only, I'm sure people in their heads have disagreed with something that I've said because they find it uncomfortable or whatever the reasons are. But I'm curious to get your opinion as why this is the only one, the only thing I've said that's gotten an immediate visceral reaction. No, I don't believe that's true, essentially. And secondly, how can we have better conversations around this topic? Because I think it's an important reality that people need to come to terms with. And clearly the way that I've been going about it by just stating the fact outright is not the, it's not the appropriate way to have that conversation. Right, right. Classic. Um, well, it's, a, it's an assumption baked in the DNA of subjects of Western industrialized society that they'll be able to have kids if they want them and they're going to grow in terms of their prosperity from the generation that we're living now because that's what we've been doing within recent memory and we are still in a system that is focused on measures of growth, GDP, you know, (laughs) 
don't you dare talk about degrowth economics. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and the sense that we are innovators and we're on the train of technological progress and that we solve these crises with our human ingenuity, all of that. I mean, we still haven't really had that reckoning of perhaps everything isn't on a, a linear upwards climb and we can curve that direction for issues of sustainability um, in ways where we're going to be okay, but just any any trajectory off of growth scares people. And I mean growth in terms of happiness as well as economics and comforts and all the things. So um, I think when you first introduce that concept that there's going to be a decline, it's deeply destabilizing and it is existentially terrifying and it can produce a kind of panic response. And the thing about the climate crisis is that it makes people think of death, right? It addresses our, our deepest fears about mortality and there's tons of great psychological research that shows why we will do almost anything to avoid being reminded of the fact that we're going to die. And particularly in ways that are unwelcome and less natural. (laughs) The idea that we're going to face some form of societal collapse that increases mortality and takes comforts away from us and increases disability and, and all these things, it's just deeply, deeply unsettling. And it's tough for the human mind to process. I don't think that we can get one conversation in whereby people are going to just harness that in a productive, emotionally intelligent way and know how to constructively adapt to that idea and then not stick their head in the sands necessarily. I think it takes time. I think this is about having relational um, opportunities to really voice how it makes us feel and to, to name the dark underbelly, which produces the suffering in a, in a permission-giving group of others so that we know we're not going to be written off as being overly dramatic, for instance, and we can start to explore those fears. It's really this mainstream assumption that if we let in grief, anxiety, fear, they're going to overrun our lives, so keep them at bay. (laughs) You know, emotional suppression, not going to look. But actually, that suppression takes far more energy, and it's really taxing. And it can produce long-term negative health impacts if we do it too long. And so we need to allow people to to move beyond that and get a better sense of actually how emotions work and some some more psychoeducation literacy about this. That if we can start to, to meet and name the emotions and allow them to be there, give them some permission, they actually have some space from us. They don't hijack us. You know, we're not going to get so taken away by them. And they're not a gang of feelings that overruns our lives. And we can start to process them and integrate them and and know that they're showing us that we care about something that's under threat, but then keep moving and find the other quote unquote positive emotions in all of this as well. So I think basically it's, it's comes down to having emotionally intelligent permission, giving conversations about how this makes us feel and allowing some time for that to bake in. Um, but I know for me, I, when I was stirring in that panic as well, it, it's just, it's not a quick process. And it took a while to find the right places where I could do that sharing and work and, and reorient myself. So yeah, I see it all the time. It's not just about kids. It's about all aspects of the climate crisis. I mean, Patrick, you, you must know this um, deeply from your conversations with folks who are distressed. It's, it's, it really, really produces the... 
variety of cognitive distortions and defenses that allow us to to pretend ourselves away from reality when reality is tough to bear. And and we've we've evolved for very good reasons to have those defenses, but in this scenario, it really trips us up and it's a huge barrier to us working together on what we got to do. Hopefully, some of our listeners are now realizing that there's a method to our madness. We just spoke about these psychological defenses or avoidance mechanisms last week with Per Espen Stokeness, who is a fellow climate psychology author, which I think is the perfect segue to speak a little bit about your book, Generation Dread. One of the things that struck me reading Generation Dread was it seems like you really, really deeply listened to the people you were interviewing. And I wonder if you learned anything particularly surprising or useful or that's stuck with you at post, post-book production in a, in a profound way. Whew. Yes, yes, yes to all of it. Every person I interviewed helped me shift my perspective in some way. If they were included in the book, that's why. You know, I found it impactful. Um, a lot, as we've already talked about, from getting outside of my kind of cultural situatedness and listening to the experiences of other communities and what the climate crisis means for their sense of security and emotional reality was deeply helpful. Um, a lot about moving beyond black and white thinking. I think that the fear response that we're jolted into when confronting climate threats and the science and implications for our future, it activates our fight, flight, freeze response. We go into a very simplistic way of functioning. You know, our prefrontal cortex kind of gets knocked offline, which holds our capacities for more complex, nuanced thinking, higher order functioning, the ability to judge the future based on the present and hold multiple kind of contrasting ideas simultaneously. You used the word hijacked. You used the word hijacked earlier that I thought was a, um, and I've, I've heard people use that word before. And I think it's probably among my favorite words to describe that, that sent, that's that, um, the experience of being pre, prefrontally numbed and incapacitated by something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's, you, you know, your nervous system doing what it ought to do. It's trying to protect you. But it has these costs associated with it when, when you get, when your limbic system gets over-energized and then you're, you're just trying to react to the threat. You, you, you actually can't do that complicated thinking and feeling, um, which will allow you to, to live in the gray zone and go beyond simplistic binaries, which means that uh, we have to dig ourselves out of this, this kind of, it's all doom and gloom, horrific, fatalistic thinking, which hurts, right? Like we have these dark thoughts and then we have the emotions that follow and that's the pain. Um, or on the other side, we can't bear to look at this. We're so scared as we were just talking about that we're fully defended and it's like, oh, dismiss the importance. No, it's going to be fine. We're going to solve it. Techno-optimism, here we come. And don't want to talk about it. Thank you. Um, and instead to be able to really get in the muck of that of that gray zone and sit with the uncertainty and sit with the emotions and allow them to be there and move through you and also provide you space for joy and hope and connection and these other things that are part of the picture. But you don't get there if you're just in that 
um, hijack mode. So lots of people help me understand ways that I can work with my nervous system when those thoughts and feelings are coming and, and move towards that more capacious matrix of feelings and be in the gray zone. And, 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 you know, that helps us be more courageous in all of this. And, um, gosh, I mean, just a, a million, a million lessons about, um, psychology, meaning history, how humans have thrived in dark times, what we can tap into for unprecedented challenges going forward as a result. Um, yeah, I could go on, but yeah, I learned, I, I learned how to basically reorient my own, my own uh, distress, which was becoming impairing, I, I would say, like affecting my functioning by doing all of that research and, and writing and learning from all the people who are in there. And now I'm far less rattled and way more resolved and happier. <laughs> so, yeah. Amazing. I could carry on talking with you, Britt, forever. You know that. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking, talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And I am excited to listen to your other episodes. Definitely Okay, episode five, Dr. Britt Ray. Let's get right into the outro. Patrick, you have children. At some point, you and your partner needed to make a decision about whether or not you're going to have children. How did that decision go for you? And was climate change factored in? Well, it's, it's, it's funny because um, I, you know, my youngest, my son is eight. So he was born in 2014. So I, acting along with most people who hadn't yet been directly affected by the realities of climate change, it just didn't factor as much into my decision making. So I was, I, I certainly knew I didn't want to have a big family. I was always thinking about how to make the most ugh, sustainable parenting choices, I suppose, when, when, when the kids were small. Uh, we tried reusable nappies. That was a nightmare, but or diapers. But we were as conscious as we sort of thought we needed to be at the time. But I, I, I always feel like really well, fortunate that I, because I, it would be if we, if I'd be in the situation then as I am in now, and you know, and and as as kind of aware and eyes open as I as I think I and you know most of the adult population around the world now are. And had to make that decision now. It would be it would be a much more challenging one. You know, I was young when I had kids, um, so that was another thing. I think I was probably, in a sense, more focused on kind of 
job security and making sure I'd have enough money to provide for my family and right, all these kinds of things, which is an interesting kind of observation perhaps in itself. But it, yeah, if, if we were to fast forward it to now and, and it would for sure be so much more a part of my decision-making and that, yeah, um, I think I would always have ended up having kids. I think that's, that's my, I've always wanted kids. My partner's always wanted kids. That was, but we were just lucky enough, I suppose, that we, it happened for us at a time when we weren't sort of racked with this dilemma about kind of planetary health as well as our, as well as starting a family, you know. It's interesting of, of all of the people that I know who have kids or are thinking about having kids, it seems to me that there's only two groups. People are either in the group where climate change did not factor into their decision-making at all, or they're in the group where climate change did factor into their decision-making or does factor in, in a substantive way. And as a result of that, they don't know if they want children. They're highly uncertain if it's something that they want. And to be clear, this is not a clear sorting of people who care about climate change and people who don't. Um, I think there's a good mix of people who care about climate change in both groups. It just seems like for some people, they're clear that they want children regardless of climate change, even if they're very concerned about climate change. And the other people are highly uncertain and there doesn't seem to be much in the way of um, a spectrum on this issue. It seems to be very polarized. This is, this is without a doubt the most common reason why people have elected to have therapy in a climate context that I've encountered. More, I would say more often than not, what tip, particularly people, obviously people are kind of in their, let's say early to mid adulthood, who are saying, I can kind of manage a certain degree of climate distress, but this decision or this dilemma is, I can't, I, it's just impossible to decide. And I can't really talk to my friends about it. I can't talk to my family about it. And there's this kind of, I don't know, there's this kind of forced silence a little bit. And there might be disagreements between partners as well. And this is what takes a kind of manageable amount of climate-related distress. Oftentimes, it, you know, it's fair to say in, in more privileged parts of the world, this, is off, this for me has been one of the key touch points for where, where it, climate change really impacts on a person's life and, a, and on a person's decision-making. This, and it just has, for understandable reasons, a huge amount of emotional significance for people. It's really, really distressing dilemma. You know, and, and it's why I'm so glad that people like Brit have been able to speak so publicly and, and eloquently and powerfully about it. Because whichever way you come out of that dilemma, whether it's deciding to have children or to not have children or whatever, have to be able to feel empowered to make that decision. And you have to be able to have people around you just that you feel comfortable speaking with. And these forums have to exist. So Britt talked about Conceivable Futures as an organisation that was instrumental for her. Uh, and she listed a you know, load of other resources that were helpful in order for her to be able to start contextualising how she felt about things and to help her, to guide her towards the decision that she felt was best for her and her family. Her story is, I, I hear it time and time again. So the 10,000, there's a the study of the 10,000 young people study that we spoke about in Mitzi's episode. Uh, Britt was an author on that paper, actually. Um, and one of the key findings from that was something like 40% of young people around the world were, were reporting that... Um, the climate crisis was having an impact on their potential reproductive decision-making in the future. 
So it's not just a kind of here and there type situation, nor is it just a, something that is being thought about in more developed countries or whatever. This is a kind of global phenomenon. And we're, we're only just starting to get to grips with it. What I'd like to know before we close out the episode is, in broad terms, what do you tell patients who come to you struggling with this sort well, of distress? I mean, the, the interesting thing is, I mean, and people might say things like, how can I tell my parents that they're not going to have grandkids? Or how, or, you know, or the other way around, how can I, how can I continue my role in sustainability if, or, you know, if I'm going to have children or, you know, how can I, and I think that was, that was a particular problem because, you know, up until relatively recently, a lot of the, and Britt mentioned this earlier, a lot of the voices in this, in this debate were vocal and towards the, towards the side of not having kids. So there were in the UK, um, we had things like the voluntary human extinction movement and the birth strike movement all centered around this idea of saying we have we're almost taking a pledge to not have children for the future of the planet and that got a lot of media attention there was this new york times article like to breed or not to breed or something so that was a great 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 headline but up until a certain point there, there was a real tilt in the public discourse which is around saying look at all these people who have decided not to have kids and so this is what I was saying at the, at the top of this episode. I, I really wanted to tackle this this idea of of child rearing and, and reproductive health in the context of the climate crisis in a kind of balanced way. And that that just hadn't been I hadn't seen that, hadn't heard that. And a lot of people coming to me were saying, "I really want a kid, but I'm I'm sort of been being made to feel like I shouldn't want a kid." You know, like if I'm if I'm truly invested in the future of the planet, then I should deny myself this this thing that I've wanted my whole life um, and I just that kind of bias in in the stories that we were hearing I think was driving people's distress particularly if they wanted kids and you know the goal of therapy should never be to tell someone what to do <laughs> um, it or make the decision for them but to try and remove any of the barriers to that decision making process happening so this is this is kind of the approach we always took with these kind of conversations in therapy to say, well, what what's getting in the way of this conversation? Is it about kind of saying, well, actually, me and my partner, we've, we've never really been able to communicate about these sorts of things anyway, about kids or not kids or what, you know, saying, well, actually, if you were to improve, if we were to work on improving communication within the relationship, would that then mean that this conversation is would 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 just be kind of better facilitated or um, if there's you know, someone's experiencing an undue amount of climate guilt or kind of pre-trauma for the future or something like that. Or if someone is, you know, Britt talked earlier about um, fight flight and feeling kind of prefrontally hijacked or, um, uh, you know, these kind of cognitive biases and uh, and thinking distortions, right? If all this, if our thinking and, and our beliefs about the future are, hijacked or or distorted or something in some way we can work on helping to sort of restore a sense of balanced thinking in the context of the climate crisis um not to play down the severity of it but just kind of are there you know are there is there some catastrophizing that's going on that's really getting in the way of being able to make this decision right so we kind of we, you know you can't point anyone in a, one specific direction or another you just have to try and 
you know, it's, it's also impossible to make a decision, particularly a really challenging decision when you're, you know, hijacked and you can't, you know, it's li- literally taking away the most important ingredients to being able to make a decision, planning, reasoning, judgment, you know, all those frontal, prefrontal, high order cognitive processes that we have as humans just get completely fried when we're super anxious. Um, and so it's about removing some of that. Patrick, I feel like the general timbre of these outros is I ask you, how do you solve this problem? And you go, Carter, not all human beings are the same. <laughs> what works for one person is not the same as what works for another. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, what, what I would say is that is that there are there are increasingly support options to help people navigate this this dilemma because uh, which I'm so glad about because people it's a, it's a tragedy that people have people are kind of seeking therapy for this um it, I just don't think it's fair uh, so there are you know there are there are organizations out there who are, you know whose specific focus is around helping people navigate this kind of dilemma and we'll link to some of them in the show notes I think this is a great place to conclude episode five. Next week, we will be speaking with Spencer Glendon. And I know I say this about every episode because honestly, I'm just so excited about all of our guests, but I'm really, really excited for next week's episode. Spencer is the, not one of the, he is the most insightful person I have ever spoken to on the topic of climate change. And I've spoken to a lot of people about climate change. Uh, I'm not going to ruin too much of what we speak about um i just think it's a a brilliant conversation all thanks to him and i highly suggest that you join us in the meantime we're gonna play our outro broccoli written by totally enormous extinct dinosaurs if you like our intro and outro music check out his stuff it's excellent and we will see you back here next week thank you so much for listening Thank you.